Welcome to the Guide to Existence. I'm your host, Rabbi G, and I want to share with you some incredible insights into this week's Torah portion, Parshish Pekude, which is the final Torah portion in the book of Shamos, the book of Exodus. And I want to talk about the overarching theme of the book of Exodus and how it reaches its culmination in this week's Torah portion. We also want to discuss the holiday of Purim and the month of Adar, which is the Hebrew month that Purim falls out in, which just started on Friday. So this week's Parsha talks about the completion of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the prototype for the temple, which was portable in the desert and eventually was built in a permanent home in Jerusalem several hundred years later. And the Mishkan is finally completed in this week's Parsha. We've had many, many weeks of reference to the building of the Mishkan and all the ingredients and the designs for the Mishkan. And finally, in this week's Parsha, the Mishkan is built and completed. And we're going to talk about that theme. There are just a few details that I want to mention before we jump in. And that's that in the beginning of the Parsha, there's an interesting conversation between Moshe and Betzalel. Betzalel is the master craftsman whose job it was to actually implement the design and the building of all the parts of the Mishkan, which included incredible embroidery and weaving and carpentry and metal work and work with precious stones. And it was a, truly a masterpiece. So Moshe commands Betzalel to begin the construction of the tabernacle, but he tells him to start with the vessels, the altar, the menorah, the table, the different, the different items that were within the Mishkan, and then to work on the actual sanctuary and the building, the tent. And Betzalel says that doesn't make any sense. Shouldn't we? Normally, a person builds a house and then he moves his furniture into the house. How can I make furniture if I don't have a house? And Moshe says, you know what? You're 100% right. That is what God had told me. And it's very strange because it's not common for Moshe to forget the law. So why is it that Moshe got the order confused in how to build what order of priorities, whether to build the tent first or to build the items in the tent first? Another thing that I want to point out is that this week's Parsha is essentially a duplicate. It's almost a complete replicate of a Parsha that took place several weeks ago. In fact, the last two Parshas, last week and this week, talks about the construction, the actual construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the clothing of the Kohanim and of all the different items in the in the tabernacle. And when it's like quite astounding, actually, that we repeat identically, word for word, Parshas that were mentioned several weeks ago where God commanded motion how to do it. Now it's almost word for word, the doing of it. And the Torah is very particular about its use of words. In fact, the Talmud will learn entire laws based on an extra word or an extra letter. 
because the understanding is that every word in the Torah is essential. So how is it that the Torah spends hundreds of words in repeating the story of the construction? It could have just said, and God did, told, and Moshe did exactly as God commanded him. And you would have saved yourself hundreds of, of words and sentences, verses. So it's very, it's very puzzling. Another issue is that when this story, the, the events in this week's Parsha were first commanded several weeks ago, it was Parsha's Titzave. And there's something very unique about Parsha's Titzave, is that there is no mention of Moshe's name in the entire Parsha. Not a single mention, as we mentioned this a few weeks ago, that why is that? So one of the uh, great commentaries, the Baal HaTurim, who explains different anomalies in the words and languages of the Torah, as well as numerical values of words. The Balaturim was the, the son of the Rush, who was one of the greatest uh, medieval uh, French commentaries on the Talmud. And his son wrote something called the Tour, which is essentially the, the first uh, version of the Code of Jewish Law. And he also wrote on commentary on the Torah where he goes through a lot of what's called gematria, numerical values and different anomalies in the in the language of the Torah. So the Balatorum gives an explanation. He says, because after the sin of the golden calf, Moshe was pleading for the salvation of the Jewish people. And he said, if you don't forgive them, Moshe says to God, then erase me from your book. And the Balatorum says that because Moshe said that, then he is now retroactively missing from one of the Parshas in the Torah. And that was Parshas Titzava, in which we learn about the clothing of the priests of the Kohanim. Now, in this week's Parsha, where those garments are actually finished, not only does Moshe's name appear, but it appears 18 times, over and over and over again. After each making of each thing, it says, Kashat Siva Hashem as Moshe, just like God commanded Moshe. And... It's very redundant. Didn't need to keep saying that. Like we get the point. Motion. It was made the way that God told Moshe, but it just keeps saying it again and again. Like God commanded Moshe. Like God commanded Moshe. Exactly like God commanded Moshe. And there, the Balatorum says almost the same language. And this time, the Balatorum says that why does Moshe's name appear so many times in this week's parsha? Why does it say? Just as God commanded Moshe 18 times, he says, this is corresponding to the fact that Moshe said, erase me from your book. That's all he says. That is very puzzling. What do I mean? Previously he said, because Moshe said, erase me from your book, his name doesn't appear in the parsha. And here it says, his name appears 18 times because he said, erase me from your book. That needs explanation. So let's talk about the overarching theme of the book of Exodus. The book in Hebrew is called Shemos, which means names. What's in a name, as Shakespeare said? What's the significance of a name? We talked about this many weeks ago at the beginning of the book of Exodus. When, when Moshe is introduced to God at the burning bush, and he says to God, when the Jewish people ask me who sent you, and I say, what name should I tell them sent me? What is your name? Moshe asks God, as if the name is going to really make a difference. I mean, if Moshe knows the name of God, does that mean that God really sent him? So the Kabbalistic commentaries, the Ramban, Nachmanides, 
medieval, great medieval commentary on the Torah says that the idea of a name is really the idea of a, an expression of self. What Moshe is really asking is what is, which, with which character trait will you be using to save the Jewish people? A name is essentially your title. It's the way others refer to you and the way you relate to others. As an example, we all wear many hats. Right? I wear the hat of father, rabbi, son, uh, husband, employee, boss. Right? We all have many different hats, and these are all essentially all our names, the way that we express ourselves in the world. So too with God. God is infinite oneness, but he expresses himself through traits, through wisdom, strength, kindness, etc. So a name equals expression. And the Kabbalists explained that in Egypt, God's expression in the world was completely hidden. God was in exile in Egypt along with the Jewish people. And the, the way that that's expressed in Kabbalah is that the power of speech was hidden in Egypt. What do we mean by the power of speech? Speech, right? we say God created the world with speech and God said, let there be. The idea uh, of speech is, is that which is hidden within coming out into expression. Because speech is the way that we relate to each other. Without speech, I can never know what's going on inside your hidden mind and your hidden heart. So when God speaks, so to speak, what it really means is he takes what's hidden and brings it out into revelation, into expression. This, this concept in Kabbalah is called malchus, which is kingship, translated as kingship, which essentially refers to God being tangibly available for us to connect to him in this world. There's a famous verse that we say many times um, throughout the liturgy, which is in Hebrew, that on that day God's name and his essence will be one. What does that mean? Think of the following metaphor. If you have a CEO of a company, what does the CEO really want for his company? Of course, the CEO wants profit, but that's not, that's not the main point. What a great CEO wants is that his company, his brand, will be a true expression of his vision for the company. There's a famous TED Talk that um, that I heard. I can't remember who says it now. Let me do a quick Google search. Um, I think it's called the Golden Triangle of Marketing. Um, I can't remember right now, but look it up. Maybe you'll find it. Where essentially describes that most companies when they try to sell something they tell you what they're selling i'm selling we make this incredible um, widget and this widget is going to make your life incredible and that's why we we make these widgets is because we want to help you but he says that that that's not particularly effective because i don't really care 
that much about your widget. But he said, great companies, and he gives the example of Google, don't sell what they do. They sell why they do it. At Google, we believe in changing the world. And therefore, we invented iPhones. Tell people why you do what you do. Bring people into your vision, into your passion. Then show them how you do it and what it's going to do for them. So a real CEO wants their company to be a perfect embody of their mission statement. And Hashem, God, is essentially the only CEO. He's the CEO of the world. And his name is his expression in the world. That's his manifestation in the world, his company brand. And God wants that his, his company should be a perfect expression of his mission, of himself. We, the Jewish people, are God's PR men in this world. Our job is that God should be revealed in perfect harmony in this world, that this world should reveal the oneness of God. That's what it means that God's name and His himself will be one. That God, on, so to speak, on earth, the experience of God should be as complete and as unified as God himself. Essentially, that's the vision of world peace, that we should bring together all the parts and pieces of this world in complete unity and harmony to reveal the oneness of God, but not in unison where everything's the same, but in harmony where everything's different and yet coming together. That's the greatest manifestation and expression of oneness. Right? You can sing in unity, unison, where everyone sings the same note, or you can sing in harmony where everyone sings different notes. Which is a greater expression of oneness? Harmony. When the different parts and pieces come together is the most beautiful manifestation of oneness. God before the world, outside the world, is just oneness. There are no parts or pieces. But the world gives the ability to even more tangibly reveal the infinite, ineffable, intangible oneness of God through the parts and pieces of this world. That's our vision. The vision of the Jewish people is to teach the entire world that God is here in everything and every one, and for us to then learn how to take and reveal and bring out the godliness inside everything and every experience. So the ultimate... Climax of that journey of God being hidden in Egypt, God's expression being hidden, God's presence, which is called the Shekhinah, the divine presence, which is hidden in Egypt, God's speech, which is hidden in Egypt, which comes out of slavery through the desert, climaxing at the giving of the Torah, and finally in the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which is now creating a tangible place where God will be revealed in the world. So, the goal for why God created the world, according to one of the explanations in the Talmud, is that God created the world in order that he should have a dwelling place below, that God should dwell with us, live with us in this world. And that's, the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle. It's a place where God is shochen. The word shochen, shechina, divine presence, means to dwell. 
to dwell with us. So nowadays we don't have a temple. We don't have a Mishkan. We don't have that central place where God is more revealed and tangible. So how are we supposed to reveal God, reveal God in this world? Perhaps the explanation is connected to one of the first teachings in this Parsha. Parsha says, Elu Mishkan, this is the Mishkan, Mishkan Ha'edas, the, the, the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony. And the, the commentaries question, why does it say tabernacle twice? And Rashi tells us that the Torah is foreshadowing the fact that there will be two temples in the future that will both be destroyed. Why is there a foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple right here in the Parsha? We talk about the completion of the first temple, so to speak. Perhaps the answer is that God is telling us in the Torah that someday there won't be a temple. And in fact, according to some opinions, the temple was never the goal. According to Rashi and others, the temple, the the tabernacle was never ideal. The goal was that every Jew would be a temple that God would dwell in each and every one of us. Only after the sin of the golden calf was it now necessary to have one centralized place that God would reveal himself. But the ideal, as it says in the Torah, make for me a temple, and I will dwell in them. And everyone asks, what do you mean dwell in them? It should say, I will dwell in it. And the answer is, as some of the great commentaries say, I will dwell in them. Build for me a, temp- a temple that I will dwell in them in the heart of each and every Jew. That That's still the goal is that God should dwell in us. The greatest revelation of God in the world is in the soul of a Jew. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's covered up, but it's always there. We just need to reveal it. Hashem is in us. When it says that God desired a dwelling place Below, in the darkest, lowest places, ultimately the place that he really wants to be revealed is inside ourselves. By us learning to take our passions and our talents and our desires and our experiences and our thoughts and our actions and our speech and utilize it all to reveal the divine within us. That's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal of creation. God wants to live in us. The good news is that he's there. He's already in us. We just have to make some space to reveal him, to let him out, to show that all the different parts of us, all the different hats that we wear throughout the day, whether we're at work or we're in the store or with our kids or with our with our spouse or with our significant other or with our roommate or with our friend, all of the parts of us, are all united from one source. That's our job. The month of Adar, there's a mitzvah to be happy the entire month of Adar. Misha Niknas Adar Marvin Mesimcha. When the month of Adar begins, a person has to increase in joy. What's the joy of Adar and the joy of Purim? Is the Purim story was a time of incredible darkness, a time of where it seemed that God was not with us. And in the end, it was revealed that he was with us every second, not through open miracles, 
but through the coincidences and the day-to-day actions of our life through nature, that God is with us all the time, even if we don't see him. And that's the greatest joy is discovering that Hashem is here, hidden in the world and hidden in ourselves. The word Adar is made up of two concepts. The letter Aleph, which is the number one in Hebrew. It also means chief, an aluf. God is referred to as the lufo sho'olam, the chief of the world. World, Aleph, the letter Aleph and the word dor. Dor means to dwell, that God dwells in the world. And the word adar also is related to the word aderet, which means a cloak, something that conceals. Because this time of year in the Hebrew calendar is the farthest away from the open miracles of Passover, Nisan, which is next month, Adar is at the other end of the cycle where God is completely hidden and yet completely tangible. You just have to break through that concealment. In fact, this week's Parsha concludes with the message that a cloud covered the tabernacle and God was in within the tabernacle. That where is Hashem? In the cloud, in the darkness. That's where God is. So, the, the Maharal points out that at the beginning of the Parsha, we literally count. The word Pekude means accounting, reckoning. Beginning of the parsha counts all the parts and pieces that went into the building of the tabernacle, all the mounts of gold and all the mounts of silver and all the different items. And in general, in Judaism, we don't count people. There's a a custom not to count Jews. If you ever see someone counting Jews, they might recite a verse that has a certain number of words in it in order to count people. Or they might say, not one, not two, not three. What's the custom of not counting people? The answer is that the Talmud says that something called an eye in hara, an evil eye, can fall on something only if that thing is counted. What do I mean by that? The idea of eye in hara, the commentaries explain, is when you look at something as if it's an end in and of itself. And you disconnect it from its spiritual source. Now something called evil eye can, can hurt and harm that thing, which we've talked about in the past. Evil eye means looking at someone that you have, your eyes have power. The way you look and think about people actually can harm them or help them. If you look at someone with negativity, if you're jealous of them, if you're begrudging, if you judge them unfavorably, you can actually cause more negativity to come out of that person or you can actually harm them. On the other hand, if you look at someone with positivity, if you see the good within them, if you judge them favorably, you can actually cause them to become better. Because when we look at someone and we count them, you say, I see you there, one. What you're saying essentially is that I see you. I see the totality of you. And when it comes to stuff, that may be true. But when it comes to people, it's incorrect. Because what you see is just a tiny part of who they really are. There's so much more than meets the eye. Everyone has a world beyond what you can see. And without getting into the metaphysical, just the fact that everyone in the world is going through challenges you know nothing about. Everyone in the world has talents 
in their life that you know nothing about. You might look at someone and judge them without looking at the full picture of who they are and where they've come from. But on, on top of that, there's a soul which goes way beyond the body. The body is like the shoe that the soul is standing in, but the soul is encompasses so much more than what you see in the body. So that's why we don't count people. But the Maral says that the Mishkan was counted so that the pieces of the Mishkan were each separate. They had the power to be separate and disconnected so that someday the temple could be destroyed. Because if not for the fact that it was counted, the temple would never have been destroyed. Why did the temple have to be destroyed? Because at some point in history when we weren't living up to our standards and the Jewish people were worthy of being destroyed, instead the temple was destroyed. But once the, ta- the parts and the pieces of the Mishkan were put together, the divine spirit rested in the Mishkan. It became oneness. All those parts and pieces were fused together in an incredible completion. It's similar very much to the creation of the world. The world was created in six days. The commentaries explain that from those six days, every part of the world was separate and disconnected. When Shabbos came, Shabbos was essentially the soul of the world, which fused and combined and connected all those pieces of physicality together with the union of spirituality. If you think of the world as a three-dimensional shape, so typically in Kabbalah, we look at three-dimensional objects as means of explaining physicality. So a cube is the most basic three-dimensional shape to represent three dimensions, length, width, and depth. A cube is made up of six sides. What makes six squares into a cube? The answer is the middle, the inner space. That's the seventh dimension. The seventh dimension is that which unites six disparate aspects of nature into oneness. Seven, number seven represents completion. When Hashem finished this, the world, he filled the world with, with a soul. That's called the Shekhinah. That's the divine presence that rests and is hidden in the world. That's what Shabbos is all about, celebration of the divine presence of the world. Shabbos Malchusa, the Shabbos queen, is a celebration of the feminine aspect of God, that part of God which dwells within each and every one of us and inside everything and experience. The building of the tabernacle emulates the building of creation. The tabernacle is considered a microcosm for the universe. And we learn out the four, the 39 activities that are not permitted on Shabbos from the building of the tabernacle. Why? Because we believe that those 39 activities that went into the building of the tabernacle are the th- correspond to the 39 spiritual activities that God did in creation of the world. So the tabernacle is literally a microcosm for the universe. And the building of the tabernacle does not push off Shabbos because the building of the tabernacle corresponds to six days of creation. And the completion of the tabernacle corresponds to Shabbos when it was all finished and the divine presence now filled the tabernacle, just like the divine presence fills the world. So Moshe himself did not build the Mishkan. Moshe was not directly involved in the building. He was only involved in the erecting of it at the end, putting it all, picking it up, essentially, after everything was built. 
Why didn't Moshe build the Mishkan? Because Moshe himself was disconnected from the world of action. Moshe's soul was on a very high level. We learn at the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moshe says, Kofid peh, lo ish devarim anochi. I am not a man of words. He kofid peh, va'oral sefasayim on anochi. I am heavy of mouth and bound up, bound up of lips. Essentially, what we learn is that Moshe had a speech impediment. Moshe was not a, a man of words. He wasn't a good speaker. He had a stutter, wasn't good at speaking, wasn't an orator. The Maral of Prague, great Kabbalist from several hundred years ago, says, what, what does it mean that Moshe had a speech impediment, that Moshe couldn't speak? He says, because speech is the process of revealing that which is hidden within the mind and bringing it out into the physical world. Moshe's soul was so lofty that he couldn't bring it down into his tangible body. He couldn't express the highest levels of his soul into this world. So Moshe was disconnected from the world of action. Several weeks ago in Parshas Tetzaveh, when we talked about the commandments to build the, all the items that were built in this week's Parsha, essentially the clothing of the Kohanim, Moshe's name is not mentioned there at all. And it seems kind of like a punishment. It says, says this, the, the, we mentioned the, uh, the, the Baal Haturim who says that because Moshe said, erase me from your book, that he now is punished, that he doesn't appear in a Torah, part of the Torah. But what we explained there a few weeks ago was that it's not a punishment at all. On the contrary, Moshe was so bound up with God, he was willing to give himself up, give his life up for the Jewish people. He says, if you don't forgive the Jewish people, erase me from your book. I want no part in your Torah. Moshe was willing to give up everything for the Jewish people that he essentially at that moment became completely one with the Jewish people and completely one with God. The highest level of existence is non-existence. When you cease to exist and you let God flow through you, you essentially become translucent. That's what we mentioned a few weeks ago. That's the idea of, of, of genius. When a person, anyone who has ever had a moment of incredible creativity, whether it's art, music, writing, uh, ideas. When you have that moment, even perhaps even sports, you essentially cease to be there. I've had those moments myself in my life where I felt like I created something that wasn't me, had nothing to do with the actual intelligence that I was gifted. It was something that came from beyond me. That's that's divine prophecy. That's, that's an experience of divine inspiration, of me making space for God to just shine through me. So Moses is non-existent in that partial because he was completely nullified to God's will. And in the world of thought, several weeks ago, when the Parsha went through all the same verses as in this week's Parsha and last week's Parsha, that was the world of thought. That was Moshe on Mount Sinai, where God revealed to him his will 
to create a dwelling place for him below. In the world of thought, Moshe was 100% nullified to God's will. But in the world of action, in this week's Parsha, it's a very different story. The Torah repeats painstakingly every single word again to show us that there's a very different experience in the world of thought and the world of action. The many, uh, Several of the great masters say that the greatest distance in the universe is not between heaven and earth. Rather, it's between a person's mind and their heart. That bringing something from our thoughts into our feelings which lead to action is infinite infinitely far apart and that's really our job is to bring what we know into what we feel and what we do that we should live a unified life a holistic life a life of integrity so the torah repeated it again to show us that it's completely different the world of action from the world of thought but now in the world of action moshe's name is mentioned why does it say again and again like god commanded moshe like god commanded moshe like god commanded moshe the answer is is because it was a perfect transmission from the world of thought into the world of action. And just like Moshe was completely nullified to God in the world of thought, that he doesn't even need to appear, in the world of action, he essentially becomes the conduit between God and the final product. He is the one who's commanding, just like God commanded Moshe, and Moshe commanded the Jewish people to create this work. He's literally now the one that's doing the commanding. He's so nullified to God that now he is essentially relating and transmitting the word of God into action. So why is it that Moshe gave over this, the wrong instructions to B'Tzalo? God said, build a mishkan, build a tabernacle, and then build vessels for the tabernacle. And Moshe, for some reason, commanded him first to build the Vessels and then the tabernacle, that's because Moshe was so living in the world of thought, he only saw the final product, which was that these vessels should be utilized inside the tabernacle. The goal is to do the work, the spiritual service that was done inside the tabernacle that would bring God into this world. So he was so focused on the final goal, which is that the ultimate vision and mission of the CEO should be revealed in the world. But he had no connection to the work of building the Mishkan itself because that's he's not living in the world of work. He's living only in the world of thought and how that thought is going to finally be revealed. The process of that process of going from thought to the, the end goal, that was not Moshe's expertise, so to speak. So... In conclusion, <laughs> an amazing thing. Uh, just just to to summarize, the the book of Shemos is there is a journey from the hiddenness of God to the revelation of God in the Mishkan and the Tabernacle, and the whole month of Adar is the celebration of finding God in the hiddenness of this world, in the hiddenness of our soul, of ourself, and revealing. The, the divinity within us, within each and every one of us, seeing the divinity in others, learning to see the good in each other, and ultimately has to start with seeing the good in ourself. And if we can do that, then we can truly experience the joy of Purim, where 
the we read the Megillus Esther, where God is completely hidden. There's no mention of God in the entire Purim story, but he's in it from beginning to end. And we have to learn to see God in the coincidences of our life, in the trials and tribulations, in the traumas and the challenges. He's there all along. He's always been with us. And more, most importantly, he's always been in us. Thank you for listening. I want to wish you a beautiful Shabbos and a beautiful week.